You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Shores Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Jeffrey Kluger on the show with me. He has an amazing new novel. It's called Holdout. Uh, you might know Jeffrey's work uh, from maybe a little film that you saw uh, that that he wrote uh, the book on uh, called Apollo 13 and uh, his and numerous other works that I'm sure uh, you have experienced and, and maybe didn't know exactly who it's from. Uh, but Holdout is his first foray into fiction writing. And this, he came right out of the gate with this one, guys. It is amazing and a must-have for your summer reading. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to have you, uh, Jeffrey. We begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Ah, that's a very good question. And my first memory of wanting to be a writer or a storyteller, um, I think, was when I was in third grade. And I had just learned about uh, the Battle of Fort McHenry and the writing of uh, the National Anthem. And I wrote a little story all in longhand and pencil um, taking place uh, a little short story about a prisoner aboard an English ship um, in uh, the harbor of Baltimore um, during the during the battle. And I came away from it just again, you know, eight years old, thinking, well, that was a heck of a great way to spend half an hour. I really enjoyed myself. And so that stayed with me from 1963 on. Wow. Well, from from that moment uh, of inspiration, you know, when when you hear the story of something and something that uh, like the national anthem that that resonates so deeply with us, um, it is that still a part of your creative process today? The the being inspired by something that that acts as a springboard to launch into something else. It is. It very much is. Um, certainly, my first book. Uh, as you mentioned, Apollo 13, um, I was always profoundly moved by that mission when it happened. It seemed like there was a, a certain poignant quality to it. Jim Lovell had been to the moon on Apollo 8 and had orbited and was going back to land, but uh, fate had other things in mind for him. Um, and it just struck me as a story with depth and richness and a natural narrative arc, a natural narrative engine. Um, and I found that quite inspiring to to write about. Um, similarly, many books later, um, Holdout occurred to me simply as a, as, as a very basic premise, a very basic question. What would happen if an astronaut aboard the International Space Station refused to come home when her rotation is up? Um, 
it was what a friend of mine called a post-it note idea and did not mean that in a bad way. Um, the friend meant it in a way that said it's a, it's a clean and simple premise that can be written on a post-it note. Now all you have to do is write the other 108,000 words. <laughs> there was another big step ahead. For, for sure, for sure. Um, Jeffrey, we, we've sort of uh, jumped forward uh, in your timeline. I, I want to back up just a minute. From that time as an eight-year-old of writing that first short story and having uh, this, you know, feeling what it was like to have the the creative juices flowing and to, to know that you could uh you know participate in this this alchemy of sorts of you know the inspiration to the the written page um a, a lot of times from those early moments until the moment that we're you know uh, out doing publicity for a book there's a a a winding circuitous route uh that falls between those two points uh, what what was it that that got you uh into writing uh you know from that moment of inspiration to actually doing it as a job and as you know doing the work uh how did you get from that point to to uh to the point of of being a professional uh that's a really good question and you are absolutely right um in my case it was a circuitous route um i had i will say i had a sixth grade teacher named cynthia cohen now cynthia monfried um who also inspired me and saw value in my writing and saw value in work and i pivot back to her a lot um when i think about um the the various hinge points in in the the journey that brought me here um but i originally did not plan to be a writer i grew up in the tumultuous 60s and 70s and envisioned going into politics um and that meant um at least back then that meant going to law school so i went to law school um and at the end of my first year in school um i sat down just on a random afternoon, though I remember the date, it was June 15th, 1977, um, sat down on a random afternoon to write three short satirical pieces that I wanted to submit to the National Lampoon, which of course has um, is a magazine that hasn't existed in many years, but was, um, you know, a, a sort of the onion of, of my era, of that earlier era. And after spending an afternoon doing that writing, I realized, and then the, again, this is not to denigrate law school, but I realized that I was more gratified in that time, um, in those few hours of, of, that I spent that afternoon, um, than I had been in my entire first year of law school. And at that moment, on that afternoon, I made uh, two decisions, that I was going to finish law school since I had already put a year in, and since there, I saw great value in that education and wanted to continue it to completion, and that as soon as I did finish law school, I was going to move from Baltimore, where I lived at the time, to New York and go into journalism. And um, Two years later, just shy of two years later, on May 31st, 1979, um, with my youngest brother, uh, we packed up a U-Haul and moved from Baltimore to, well, it wasn't quite New York, it was Hoboken, New Jersey, but it was right across the river, so it was close enough for us. Jeffrey, uh, over the uh, the years of doing this show, I've met a number of people who have a history 
in in studying and and sometimes practicing law and also people that uh, have a history with journalism and that that go into writing fiction later uh you know down the road uh, do you look back now and see any tools in your toolbox uh so to speak that you gained from from your law school education and from uh, your time in journalism, did, are there any things there that you picked up along the way that now as a writer you look back on and, and maybe are grateful that you have those things at your disposal? Absolutely. And I've often talked about this, particularly even before journalism. Law school really taught me something about exhaustive research. It taught me something about clarity of expression. Uh, It taught me about discipline when you are really in the thick of work, because law school is a lot of very grinding reading and a lot of sometimes turgid writing. um, And you try to take the turgidity out of it and, you know, clarify it and make it, um, you know, not just comprehensible, but motivating, animating, because law school is about making arguments. Um, I think I learned also a certain pointillistic approach to research, you know, finding those bright colored dots um, that add dimension and add texture to the writing that I'm doing. And I think think without law school, I may not have had such a such a finely tuned um, approach to writing and research. Journalism uh, allowed me to put all of that into practice before I ever wrote books. I was in, I didn't start writing Apollo 13, my first book and my first nonfiction book um, until 1991, uh, really 92. Um, And that was after 12 years in the journalism field. So um, I had three years of law school and then a dozen years of real practice before I started. Now, there are other people who who start faster. Um, just a shout out to a friend of mine, a colleague named Jamie Ducharme, um, just wrote her first book called Big Vape about the rise uh, and fall of, of Juul, the, you know, the vaping um, device. Um, and Jamie, I think, is 27 and has been, you know, at times a lot shorter than I have. So some people take longer. I needed a longer incubation period. And I think law school and a dozen years of journalism helped me with that. Sure. Speaking of Apollo 13, um, the, lots of people are familiar with the movie. Um, the book is also a, a, a deep dive on this this moment uh, of history that um, that we're familiar with, but you gave us a view into that that is um, that that really opened a, a lot of eyes to to the realities of of our recent past and and you know exactly what it took uh, to put these men on the moon and 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 the uh, the experiences that were all wrapped up in that. I'm I can't help but think um, in our age of information at our fingertips, we literally all have a, a phone in our pocket with access to all of the accumulated knowledge of of our human existence. Um, you know, I, my kids are are young adults, and they are used to. If you want to know about Apollo 13, you can just look it up real quick. You can get a Wikipedia page. You can get bullet points, and we 
we feel like we're informed. Uh, like the more knowledge that's available, the less um, we we know about it in in a weird sort of way. When you were writing Apollo 13, um, you didn't have a, a lot of these things that have been collected for us at your fingertips. Um, where did you where did you see the story? Um, that would become, you know, we, we know there are historical events, there are historical people, but how did you identify what the narrative that ran through that, that you knew this is a story that needs to be told? Well, I, it's a very good question, and I think I was very fortunate in that the narrative um, was sort of self-defining. You know, I Another person I'd like to give a shout out to, my uncle, Richard Kluger, um, who's written, I don't know, a dozen, 15 books in his life and won the Pulitzer Prize in 1997 for his book uh, called Ashes to Ashes about the uh, history of the Philip Morris Company. Um, when I first was uh, considering, contemplating writing a book about Apollo 13, I called him and asked what he thought of it. Um, and he said, I think it's a really good book and I think it's a, a really good book idea. And I think it's especially a good first book idea because the story unfolds over the course of six days. Um, it's a very self-contained, um, tale, although obviously there was a great deal of backstory that went into it. We, I did a lot of reporting into the early space program and into Jim Lovell's early life and childhood, um, but the main the, the main beating heart of the story takes place over the course of, of just the six days of the mission itself. Um, it has a natural narrative arc from, you know, all is well to crisis to all of the setbacks and and the circuitous route they took to get home. Um, and it has charismatic characters, particularly Jim Lovell, around whom the story can orbit. So it had all of the necessary um, elements of, you know, a great classic tale of an odyssey and a recovery. Um, and when I was writing this book, you know, I often, if I ever had moments when I felt daunted or ever had moments when I felt um, that I was a little bit overwhelmed by the, the scale of the task, um, I would remind myself that uh, I was in a great position because history already wrote the story for me. <laughs> to do was select the threads and weave them into the way I wanted to capture that history and tell that tale. So um, it was a great resource, that event itself, and it made for natural storytelling. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website. Developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates, PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. 
PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and 3 acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com After that book came out and and it got out into the world and, and uh, Apollo 13, the book sort of took on um, a life of its own and, and became, I would imagine, bigger than than you you know thought uh, imaginable and, and then, you know, became the movie and, and all of this sort of thing. At what point did you realize, um, you know, that, that this was going to be a, a cultural phenomenon of sorts? I don't think I fully realized that it would be a cultural phenomenon until after the movie was made. I understood that that a movie could mean great things for a book and could mean great things for book sales. So I was excited about that um, in a, you know, I must confess a somewhat mercenary way. Um, um, uh, and, you know, a certain measure of vanity played into it. I often say, I often joke, that when Jim Lovell um, first suggested that we collaborate on this book, I approached him asking him if he was willing to be interviewed and he said he would prefer to collaborate. Um, And I often joke that this is quite true though, that vanity being vanity and authors being authors, the first thing that occurred to me was whose name would go first. And I thought, (laughs) I'm gonna be doing the lion's share of the writing and K comes before L in the alphabet, so I should go first. And then I said, well, on the other hand, let's think back to 1970. Jim Lovell went to the moon that year. I went to summer camp. So 
between the two of us. He clearly deserved first billing, but I don't think I fully appreciated that how much of a great American tale it would become until the movie was out and I saw the reaction to it. And even then, it took several years when the movie was already, you know, was now the, in the archives of American film. And I look back on it and I think it really is one of the great American movies. It's one of the great American success movies. It's one of the great, it's one of the great American adventure films. And I think it will remain that way. I think it's one reason that the movie will never be remade, even, you know, as technology got better and it was easier to simulate things. Um, this is, I think, the perfect film made the perfect way by the perfect director and the perfect stars. I, I think it will stand for decades, centuries. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So Jeffrey, um, we're here today to talk about your new novel, Holdout. Um, this is the first piece of fiction that you published. Is that right? Uh, no, I've written two other works of uh, fiction, both um, for young adults, um, and they both were sort of magical realism tales. One was set in a place not unlike Ireland, though I don't call it Ireland, in the 19th century, and one was set aboard, set uh, on a plantation um, in South Carolina in 1863, um, but they both had magical realism elements to them. To them. Um, but this is the first adult fiction I've been. Gotcha, gotcha. Holdout has such an amazing premise. Well, actually, a, a number of premises. Um, how did how did this the I, I I'm fascinated with the beginnings of things. You know, one moment, um, Holdout doesn't exist in any form, in you know, in in any way, and then either you start thinking of of a character, and you know, and then the, this character is uh, you know walks on the. Uh, on the stage of, uh, of you know, in, in this case, a, a, a space station. And, and you start thinking, well, who is she and, and what is she doing? Um, and then, you know, or, or maybe you read an article and, and start thinking, you know, playing the what if game that, that authors do. Well, what if this happened? And what, what if, uh, you know, these two things intersected? And then how would that play out? Uh, what, what was that moment, that spark of inspiration that, that came to you for Holdout? Uh, it's, I'm glad you asked that because it really was, unlike the other books I've written, it really did have a clear moment like that. Um, I was thinking that I might like to write space fiction. I was very familiar at that point with the International Space Station because of work that, um, myself and, uh, the video team at time did on the, uh, on Scott Kelly's year in space. We put together a documentary called A Year in Space um, about his mission. Um, and so I became very familiar with the space station and thought, gee, I wonder if, I, if there's a story to be written about and aboard the space station. And it did occur to me, well, what would happen if an astronaut aboard the space station simply refused to come home um, when her time was up at the moment, at that moment, it was his time was up. Uh, the character was a man originally. Um, and I thought, well, what an interesting premise. Um, and you know, I already decided that, um, 
if when she was first asked why she didn't want to come home, she would quote Bartleby the Scrivener from the great Herman Melville short story and simply say, I would prefer not to. Um, and then I had to do a lot of work giving her a good reason to stay there. It couldn't just be performance art. It couldn't just be obstinacy. It couldn't simply be, you know, a psychic breakdown that caused an astronaut to do something crazy. Um, it would have, she would have to have a good reason for doing what she was doing. And coming up with that reason actually took a lot more work than I thought it would. Um, I gave a great deal of thought to what her various motivations could be for staying in space before I came up with the one that, that I did, which, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into, um, in the next question or two. Sure. Well, that is my next question. So the, you start looking for a reason for her to, uh, to, to take this stand. Um, and, and it's a personal reason to her. She's, she's connected to it. What was that next part that, that, that next puzzle piece that fell in that, that to you made for a believable premise why someone would would take this sort of stand? Well, it's funny because I actually, this book was written one and a half times. Um, <clears throat> I started it in, in 2017, the fall of 2017, finished it, finished the first version of it and what I believed would be the only version of it um, in the fall of 2018. And originally, this was during the early part of the Trump administration that I was writing this, and originally her premise was she was protesting the construction of a trench, not a wall, a trench at the Mexican border. Um, with the U.S., uh, and she was there to protest this happening. She was staying aloft to protest what she saw as an act of sort of cultural violence separating two, uh, metaphorical violence separating two cultures. Um, and I wrote the book, and we sent it out like that. And uh, my agent got quickly got she sent it to 14 places and quickly got seven rejections. And the universal response was, um, when I'm in space, I can't turn the pages fast enough. And when I'm on the ground, I can't put the book down fast enough. So, um, you know, we got clearly the premise was there, an astronaut who wouldn't come home from the space station. What happens to her when she was aloft was there. Um, but the reason I gave her wasn't there. So I basically gouged out that entire 46% of the book, threw it away, I actually counted the words. And so it was, I was grateful when I thought, okay, at least 54% survived. More than half of the book survives. Less than half a book. Uh, and then this time I gave her a premise that wasn't quite so pegged to, to, transient American politics. This time, um, she's staying aloft in order to protest the whole-scale burning and the ethnic cleansing of the indigenous tribes in the Amazon, um, a kind of devastation so great that she could actually see it from space. Um, and she has a personal investment as well because a niece of hers, who's actually sort of a surrogate daughter since she was orphaned um, uh, when she was younger, it works for an organization similar to Doctors Without Borders and is in the thick of the emergency in the jungle. So Wally Beckwith, my character, is working both to save the jungle and tribes and to help save her niece, the person who means the most to her, um, more, who means more to her than anyone in the world. And I think that's what really sold that that premise for me was 
this was literally something she could see going on from space and she might have had um a unique vantage point uh more unique than the rest of us get because you can you can watch stories on the news you can you can read things all you want to but there's just something very different uh about looking down and and seeing this wholesale destruction that you know from space that that has to be you know that that really and and i think that's a lesson for a lot of writers to to learn that you can have a great premise but character motivation matters it absolutely matters that's right yes and there's something called um that astronauts write about called the overview effect um which is the change that comes over them when they're able to see the earth from that perspective, when they're able to see a world without borders, when they're able to see, um, you know, that the atmosphere is really just this, this fantastically thin and destructible onion skin that protects us from the killing void of space. Um, when you see the, you know, the earth as sort of a spacecraft, um, on which all of us are passengers and crew. Um, you know, one astronaut who's written about this particularly lyrically, uh, Ron Garin, um, who has a book out now called Floating in Darkness. Um, I credit Ron with and his his worldview um, with helping me understand uh, the overview effect. And Apollo 8 also taught me a lot about the overview effect because that was the first mission when astronauts had moved, were able to move far enough away from the Earth that they could see the planet hanging just in the void of space. You could just see it as a sphere instead of just a horizon beneath you, which is how astronauts see it when they're in orbit. Um, and there's a moment in the book um, in which Frank Borman looks at the earth from that distance and what the cockpit recorder picks up is him saying wow is that beautiful um what he later said he was really thinking but didn't say was this must be what god sees and whether you are a believer or not um he is a deep believer um that was that's a pretty moving perspective on the world sure Jeffrey, I, I know you've got to run in just a minute, but I want to ask you one more question. As someone who has written uh, science fact and science history with with uh, the the books that you've done on the Apollo mission and the the web series that you've done for Time Magazine, uh, and someone that is now writing science fiction, um, how do you how do you think that science fiction has fared? Um, you know, we've we've had some really lofty stories that have made some predictions. Some of them, uh, some novels are set in the far distant future, and you know, we'll we'll probably never see how those play out. And then some are written in the very uh, near future, like like your book. Um, as, as someone who has reported on science and and now writing science fiction, how do you, what do you think of the state of science fiction and what about the importance of telling stories based uh, on what we can and, and sometimes are accomplishing? Well, I, in some respects, I think science fiction, at least when it comes to space travel, um, has fared less well than it could, which is sort of like the space program itself. It has fared less well than it could. Um, and I think, believe me, when I say this, I don't 
say this to, to diminish science fiction. I think science fiction is more aspirational than we are ourselves. You know, I'm in the midst of watching For All Mankind on Apple Plus, um, the alternative history of the space program in which Russia lands on the moon first, and this prompts, this maintains a real space race. And, you know, you sort of see where space, the space program would have gone if we had kept the Apollo program going. Um, so I think stories like that are more aspirational than we actually have been as a nation and as a people. Um, at the same time, I think uh, if, if science fiction can make us aspire, then maybe there can be sort of a feedback loop and sci-fi can tell us stories about the future we want to have. And then maybe that motivates people to go make that future happen. So that is, in some senses, there may be sort of a quantum feedback loop in which science fiction helps generate, helps turn itself into science fact. The new novel is Holdout. It's available everywhere now. You can grab it in hardcover or Kindle edition or audiobook. There's links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can click over, buy it, or go visit your local bookstore. And uh, let's keep the book economy rolling. Jeffrey, uh, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank, for having me. I really appreciate it. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Onspach and Nick Cole, narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One, the army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons. Which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers... Just call it the fob. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the army of the dead advancing on us? Claymore mines the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton? Were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. 
The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the bronze or iron ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some. Rotting boots. Helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts. Beads and charms dangling from bone wrists. Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. 
Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.